This sermon was preached at University Park Baptist Church in Houston, Texas. For more information about UPBC, visit upbchouston.org. It's a joy to be with you. I want to thank you for, for praying for me, thank for praying for our family and our time that we've been away. Uh, it was a wonderful trip, and I just want you to know there's no other place I'd rather be than here uh, with you. And I'm so thankful for this church. I'm so thankful for being with you and jumping back into Luke's gospel together. And that's what we're doing uh, this morning, uh, continuing our study through seeing Jesus in the gospel of Luke. And we've been looking carefully uh, at really the heart of discipleship in Luke chapter 9. Jesus has been giving the, the really clear instructions about what it means to be a Christian. Um, you know, those, those, those phrases that become familiar to us, what it means to deny yourself, take up your cross daily, lose your life for his sake, uh, that it doesn't profit you to gain the whole world if you lose your soul. No one who's a true member of the kingdom of God puts his hand to the plow and then turns back. That's where we've been. And in the timeline of Luke's gospel, we've kind of come to the turning point, which is chapter 9, verse 51, where Jesus sets his face toward Jerusalem. He's been talking about, after Peter's confession of where he's going, what he's going to do, he's going to die, he's going to be crucified, and now he's setting his face to go. And there's no turning back. And he and his disciples have already had a taste of rejection there in uh, Samaria. We saw in chapter 9 as they've rejected Jesus uh, and the message of Jesus. We also saw in chapter 9 Jesus send out the 12 um, apostles on kind of a, a mission to, to go heal in his name with his authority. And what we're going to see this morning is a similar sending, except this time with, with more uh, disciples. 70 or 72 are going to go ahead of Jesus on this mission of preparation and prayer. So this unit is, is very significant. There's so much here. We're going to look at it in two sermons, Lord willing. Today, we're going to think about the first 16 verses that, that show the kind of the instructions to the disciples and the warnings that are given to the unresponsive cities. So verses 1 to 16, that's where we'll be today. And then next time, Lord willing, we'll see the report from the trip and then Jesus' thankfulness for God's grace, verses 17 to 24. As we said in chapter 9, this mission is a specific one. So it's given to the 72, and we should, I think, take care not to see it as kind of a formulaic blueprint for all of life and ministry. So I think it's okay to bring an extra pair of shoes when you go overseas. I did. I brought two extra pair um, this last trip. Um, but that said, there are amazing connections here. We see what it looks like, for example, for Jesus' disciples to be sent into a new place to announce that the kingdom has come, to proclaim the king's message of peace. That's significant for us, isn't it? The mission that Jesus calls this large group to, it involves risk, it involves rejection, and it requires a deep dependence on God. That is true for our mission today. The problem that Jesus identifies of a plentiful harvest and not enough workers, that problem hasn't changed in our day. The urgency of the message, the content of the message, the essential importance of a response to the message, no different today than in our passage before us this morning. In fact, the one speaking to the disciples in this passage is the one speaking to you this morning. Look at verse 
16. And by that, of course, I mean Jesus. The one who hears you, hears me. And the one who rejects you, rejects me. And the one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. So listen carefully to King Jesus. His central point is our main point, uh, and it's found there in verse 2. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest that he would send out laborers into his harvest. Um, As we go through this passage, I'm going to give you pause around nine words. That's right. This is a nine-point sermon. And all those words start with the letter P. You're welcome. I'm a pastor. That also starts with the letter P. Think of pegs. These nine letters, these nine words, rather, starting with P, are pegs for you to hang both content and application. We're going to spend more time, obviously, on some than others. We're going to go through some quickly. Some will linger on more. Here's the bottom line. Life is short. The kingdom of God has come near. We have a message of peace that has actually been accomplished through Jesus Christ on the cross to give to a world that is in darkness. Jesus has sent us as ambassadors of peace, as lambs among wolves, to bring in a harvest of souls. And he is the Lord of the harvest. His people will come to him. Our question is, how should that change the way that we pray? How should that change the way that we live? The way that we die? The way that we go? My prayer is that it would actually direct everything in our lives. Everything. So hopefully your pen is ready to write down some of these things. The first word I want to draw your attention to is the word preparation. So number one, preparation. We only find this sending of the 72 in Luke's gospel. We see the others of the sending of the 12 in the others, but we we only find this one here in Luke's gospel. These 72 witnesses have a ministry, I think, like that of John the Baptist, of preparation, to prepare the way for the Lord. Look there again, verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. Uh, Now, many good um, early manuscripts uh, record Jesus sending out 70 disciples. Many good early manuscripts record 72. Here's why I think that is. Uh, I think the number here is symbolic of all the nations of the world that are listed in Genesis 10. So the Jews would have viewed Genesis 10, kind of the table of nations, as all the nations of the world. And, and there are 70 names listed in Hebrew in the Masoretic text. And in the LXX, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, there are 72 names listed there. Luke is likely following the LXX, the Septuagint. I think that's why we get the 72. Um, that's, that's, I think, a, a reason you might have to look at that footnote, why that's there. The big picture is unchanged. Both of these, I think, references are referring to the gospel going into all the world, to all the nations. The languages that were scrambled up and the people who were scattered will not uh, find their way back to God through man-made means, like the Tower of Babel, where they try to build a tower up to God. No, God must come to them, taking on flesh in the form of Jesus Christ, to call them back to himself. That is beginning. That kingdom Um, inauguration is happening here as the message of the good news is being announced and proclaimed. So the disciples are sent out, and they're sent out in pairs. I think that likely reflects the the two-by-two, kind of the, the, the Old Testament principle that's carried over even to the new of two witnesses to establish a matter. 
I also think it's just just wisdom, right? To when you're when you're traveling and you're you're in uh, in a place like this, ministering with others, not to be a lone ranger. The, these are these are pioneers. They're taking the good news of Jesus to the larger world. So if you hang around very long here at UPBC, you're going to hear us say that our message message is that God is, God speaks, God saves, and God sins with a D, sins. So if you're a member of our church or you're a Christian who's visiting this morning, uh, you'll find that as you read the Gospels over and over, this reality of being sent by Jesus to make disciples, to share the good news is there. Uh, That's happening in a very specific and special way here in our passage, but there's also a very intentional way that Jesus sends all of his disciples to make other disciples. You see that in places like Matthew 28 and other places even in Luke's gospel. Sometimes it's going to look like this, a ministry of preparation, kind of building in building blocks into the life of someone else, theology into the heart of your child. Okay, so one of the reasons we're singing holy, holy, holy is that we would we would let our children know and understand early on that God is holy. Or, or you're doing that maybe with a friend who doesn't have a church background and you're, you're just putting in some preparatory building blocks into his life. Sometimes that work is slow. Sometimes it, it goes faster. Some of you may be in the midst right now of sharing the nuts and bolts of why Jesus came to die with a friend. But listen, whether it's to a child's bedroom for a bedtime prayer, whether it's across the street to start a conversation or across your classroom after the lecture or at a dinner table or in the mailroom at your apartment complex or to a people group that has little or no access to the gospel, where it's very dangerous to be a Christian. You are sent by Jesus to make disciples, that all the nations would hear the good news and worship King Jesus. If that's intimidating to you, let me encourage you by saying, join the club. It's intimidating to all of us. It was intimidating to the prophets. Listen to the, this exchange between Jeremiah and God and Jeremiah's calling in Jeremiah 1, verse 7. Then I said, Jeremiah, Ah, Lord, behold, I did not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say, I am only a youth, for to all whom I send you, you shall go, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. You're in good company. And so as the Lord was with Jeremiah, he will be with you and he will be with me. He's with the 72 here. And we see a wonderful example of that on mission, this mission of preparation. And as he does, he's going to send them with kind of this identification of a problem. That's the second P, if you're taking notes. The second word I'll draw your attention to is problem. You see the problem that I'm talking about in the first part of verse 2. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Get that picture in your head. Jesus is saying that the world is like a field that is ripe unto harvest. The harvest isn't wheat, it's souls, it's people, okay? People are prepared by God to hear the good news of the kingdom. They're ready to hear the gospel, to believe in Jesus, to be collected into his eternal kingdom. It is a plentiful harvest. That doesn't sound like a problem. It's not that it's not the season for harvesting. It is. It's not that the process of harvesting is too difficult or that the crop is fickle and sometimes it's ready and on time and sometimes it's not. No, it's ready. It's it's plentiful. Jesus told his disciples in John 4 verse 35, do not say therefore 
There are yet four months, then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. The harvest is plentiful. Jesus looks at India and the 2,142 unreached people groups and Pakistan with 821 unreached people groups and Nepal with 266 unreached people groups and says, lift up your eyes to the harvest. It is plentiful. The problem isn't the harvest. It's the lack of laborers, he says. Not enough people to go and work the fields and bring in the harvest. The laborers are few. According to the Joshua Project, you can just find that online if you're interested in some of these statistics about the world and the gospel. Less than one in ten missionaries work among unreached people groups today. And before we kind of rail on them and, you know, let's, let's first be thankful that people have left their life to go and serve, to, to, to share with others the gospel, and also understand that there's probably a reason that these people that are so unreached are that way. Nine of the top ten countries with the greatest persecution of Christians are dominated by extremist groups. Five out of six of all unreached people groups live in restricted access countries, closed countries. Wycliffe estimates that 2,000 more workers are needed today to translate the gospel for more than 3,000 unreached people groups that don't have the Bible in their own language. And although there are more than a billion Muslims on the planet today, it's estimated that less than 2% of all American missionaries are working in Muslim communities. And listen, even at this stage in Luke's gospel, it's gone from Jesus sending out the 12 to 72, and obviously, clearly, that is not enough. Because he commands that even as they go, they pray for more workers, more laborers. That's the next peg to jot down, number three, prayer. So we've got preparation, problem, and now prayer. Look at the rest of verse 2. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, so what do we do about this problem? Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Prayer. Isn't it interesting that as they are sent, they're to be praying for more workers? as they're going. So the first step in preparing hearts to meet Jesus is prayer. The first step to preparing hearts to meet Jesus is prayer. If, if we want this perspective of Luke 10:2, where there's a harvest out there that Jesus has prepared, go and, and, and collect it. We, we need to, for that perspective, we need to pray for it. We don't roll out of bed with that perspective. I roll out of bed thinking about the problems the hurdles, the danger. So what do we do when that is overwhelming? What do we do when, when people do go and are converted and then are killed in these places? What do we do when, when we're staggered by the thousands of peoples, not people, peoples, thousands of peoples that if nothing changes will be born, grow up, and die apart from ever hearing the name of Jesus? What do we do with that? We pray, Jesus says. And let me ask three questions of that prayer. Three questions of that prayer. First, how do we pray? He says we pray earnestly. We pray earnestly, consistently, 
passionately, in an informed way, as we ourselves are making disciples. Earnestly, we pray. I just want to think you to think in your own mind, in your own heart, about the things that make it to that point of your prayer, the earnest, kind of deep heart, crying out prayers. That's what we're talking about. I have a friend who has, a, has set his, uh, an alarm on his phone that goes off every day at 10.02 a.m. and 10.02 p.m. as a reminder for this passage to pray this verse. Uh, and I remember being with him, um, with his family in the car one time, and the phone goes off and everybody just kind of stops what they're doing, stops the conversation, and they all say, okay, who wants to pray? And they began to pray this prayer. Every single day, twice a day, they're praying this prayer as a family. That's just one example that I've seen personally that's impacted me of praying earnestly, not forgetting about this, not out of sight, out of mind, these unreached peoples. We hear about it once in a while when we talk about missions, but all the time keeping this before us. Where does this rank, I think, for us? It's a good question. Where does this call rank? How are we informed about our prayers as we pray to Jesus for this? Second, what, who do we pray to? This is really important. He says, you pray to the Lord of the harvest. The Lord of the harvest. And that is, that is encouraging. Uh, this title means that God is sovereign over the harvest. That's, that's reassuring. That's encouraging. But we're going to see this taught explicitly next time as we look at verses 21 and 22, where Jesus is going to praise God for hiding the good news from some and revealing it to others, saying that is the gracious will of of God, His sovereign will, the Lord of the harvest, is doing that. Jesus acknowledges that. He prays and thanks God for that. So you're the harvest, you're the Lord of the harvest, the sovereign Lord. And so no matter if a country is closed or restricted or if you deem someone in your own life too far gone, the Lord of the harvest brings dead things to life. That's who we're praying to. We're not starting with our own abilities and strategies and what we think we can do. No, it's the Lord of the harvest. One example from the book of Acts, uh, the context is Macedonia. Paul is just, interestingly, shaking the dust off from his clothes because he's been rejected by the, the Jews there. He says, okay, I'm going to the Gentiles. We're going to see that here in just a minute in our own text. We know where he gets it from. And, he, and, and, and he's actually seems to be dealing with fear, the apostle Paul. We read this in Acts 18, verse 9. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid. But go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. When he says, I have many that are in this city, friends, those are many who have not yet come to know Jesus, but are his. It's a harvest waiting to be collected. He's the Lord of the harvest. Pray to him. Third, what are we praying for? What are we praying for? Laborers. Laborers. And listen, that might not be your first instinct as you pray for this, as you pray for missions. You might not have thought Jesus, you might have thought Jesus would say, ask the Lord to save these people. Ask God to do it. But he doesn't. He calls the disciples to pray for people, to open their mouths and share the gospel, to go. Friends, this is God's ordained means for how this happens, how this works. He sends out people. And yes, the, the phrase that can be translated thrusts out workers to go. 
We are not hyper-Calvinists. And that say, if God will save the lost, he's going to do it without us. No, it doesn't work that way. If Reformed theology in any way, shape, or form lessens the effect of your responsibility to share the gospel or support others who are sharing the gospel, you can be sure it's a bad theology. We don't ever see that in the Bible. We see things like this, Romans 10, 14. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? This is God's ordained means for for you to go, for me to go, open our mouths and share the good news and for the Spirit to land on someone, for them to believe the good news and respond. And here's one thing to consider as you're earnestly praying for the Lord to raise up gospel workers. You might actually end up being the answer to your own prayer. I think that's what happens here in this text. They're praying for workers as they go as workers. You may see the exact same thing, that as you pray and as you think on the lostness of this world, God answers your prayer by calling you into the harvest fields in a very particular way. And as you labor in the gospel harvest, how are you to go about that labor? What sort of posture should you have? That's the fourth peg that we'll consider. Trying to move on. Number four, posture. Posture. Jesus tells these 72 disciples how they're to go out into these towns to minister in his name. So Jesus gives a word picture and then specific instructions. First, the word picture, verse 3. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Uh, Lamb imagery is all over the Bible. Okay, It ultimately culminates in Jesus Christ himself as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And, And here, Jesus is sending the disciples out as lambs among wolves. And at least we should take away from that that this gives us a picture of the danger and the risk of the mission. On paper, there's not much of a, of a matchup between a wolf and a lamb, right? That's, that's why in the pioneer days of African missions, missionaries packed their belongings, belongings for their journey uh, in a coffin because they weren't expecting to come home. If you start looking and praying about unreached people groups in the 1040 window, you're going to find a lot of wolves guarding those people. I know that if, if it's me and I'm playing a board game with you and we're picking our little pieces to go around the board and there's a lamb and there's a wolf, I'm picking the wolf every time. A wolf is strong. It's a hunter. It's got fangs and claws and it intimidates its prey. It gets things done. You don't want to cooperate with a wolf, he'll figure out a way to make you cooperate. So brother and sister, see this picture. Jesus does not send us out as wolves, but as lambs. Lambs are vulnerable. Lambs are dependent. Lambs have to stick together. They're not intimidating. But here's the thing. The biblical imagery is not only consistent about our lambness, but also about the strength and might of the shepherd. The wolves are afraid of the shepherd. He will run them off. He will protect the sheep. He will guide us. He will provide for us. We will hear his voice and he will not lead us astray. So Christian, this is the way. Letting go of our wolf instincts and trusting in the good shepherd to do the work that only he can do. Not not trying to, to force it ourselves, 
Not trying to eliminate all the risk and danger. Jesus doesn't send us into a playground or a monastery, but into the darkness where the wolves are. But he's with us. It's the posture for the Christian life, right? How often do we see this in our own lives, that we're, we're trusting in the shepherd as we go out in the darkness? If you believe it, it really affects the posture of your whole life. Notice these, that, that's the word picture. Notice the, the practical instructions that, that follow in verse 4. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. So the disciples are to take only what they need, just enough finances for the journey, no more, no extra pair of sandals, no, no knapsack. I think that's what he means, extra pair. I don't think he means that they're to go around barefoot. And, and, and greetings here in this culture could be long and elaborate. So don't even stop to greet people on the way. Just get there. There's an urgency for you to get there. Just like we saw in chapter 9, right? These instructions are for this specific trip. Luke 22 reminds us of that. When Jesus is gathering his disciples again, he says to them, Luke twenty two thirty five. 35, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? And they said nothing. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. So the point is not that you go around without any material needs. But the lesson is that you understand God provides. God is the provider. You can trust him. There's no security to be found in these material possessions. So prepare all you need, but trust God for the results. So the disciples have this posture of humility and dependence and contentment with what God has given them. And it's all sourced from this deep sense of peace that only comes from knowing God through Christ. That's number five, the next peg Peace. We have preparation, problem, prayer, posture, and peace. Look at verse 5. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. So the disciples are essentially ambassadors of peace on this mission from Jesus. And they've come to declare that this peace has been, or the kingdom has been inaugurated. It's coming to them. The king is offering amnesty. He's offering a pardon for those that have rebelled against him. And so if you're here this morning and you're, you're not a follower of Jesus, you're not a lover of Jesus, but you're, you're here, you're listening to a sermon about Jesus, I'm really glad that you're here. Thank you for listening and being here with us. Let me just give you a summary of kind of what this peace really is. Paul sums it up, and you might want to write this verse down, in Romans 5, uh, verse 1, says this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the Bible tells us that things are not okay between us and God naturally. Usually when there's a problem, particularly in relationships, we would say things like, hey, it takes two to tango. It's probably, the fault is probably on both sides. And that is actually usually true, but not in this case. Not in this case. God is actually perfect and holy and good. He's never made a mistake. He made you and me in his image to love him and enjoy him and experience him but we have turned away from him. We have rebelled against him and broken his laws. 
And actually, we've done something else. We've removed him from the throne of our life to say that actually we want to be in the throne. We want to rule our own lives. That is high cosmic treason. And the Bible calls that sin. We have sinned against a holy God. And because God is just, and because he is righteous and all-powerful, he will judge all sin eternally and perfectly. So you don't start life with a blank slate. You're not in neutral, and you do some good things and bad things, and you go in forward and reverse. That's just not the way it works. We are enemies, natural enemies of God. And he will pour his just wrath on us for our sins if we remain in that state. Now let me read Romans 5.1 again. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. How could this be? God sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world to save us. And he did that by walking in our shoes as the eternal son of God. He took on flesh that he might live a life of righteousness for us as a man. And then he went to a cross and there he bore the wrath of God that we deserved from the father. So he took our place both in his life and then in his death. And three days later, he rose from the grave bodily, victorious over sin and death. So that now if we trust him, if we receive him by faith, turning from our sin, we will be rescued from hell. We will be saved from wrath, given his righteousness, and have peace with God. Justification means that we're declared righteous in God's sight. And reconciliation means that we have peace with him through Jesus Christ. Friends, that's the good news. That's on offer for you today, no matter what you've done. You can come to God through Jesus Christ and be forgiven. And we pray that you would do that today. If you have questions about what it means to know Jesus and walk with Jesus, talk with someone near you on your row. Come talk to me after the service. I'd love to talk to you more about it. Jesus' disciples are going and announcing peace. And, and he tells them that when they come to a house, they should pronounce this peace to it. And interestingly, if there is a son of peace there, he will receive it. It's as if God has already gone ahead of them and prepared a way for them to go. And if that person is there and he's receptive to this peace, he will, he will respond to it, he will receive it, and that peace will rest upon him in the house. If not, it will return to the, to the messenger. So I think this is just another example of Jesus reassuring the disciples that God is going to help them, he's going to go before them, he's going to be with them, and that they are not on their own. Now, I don't think this is necessarily a manual for, for doing modern missions today. Like I said, like it must be X, Y, Z, but you, know, you must find a person of peace first, and then you go into these other areas. I'm not saying that that's, that's here, but I'm sure if you've talked to many missionaries who have worked overseas, you've probably heard stories like this over and over again of going into a context where there's no believers and someone is, is welcoming them, someone helps them, someone gives them an in. And, and likes them in a way that, that brings them into the community and lets them have this relationship with others in the community. We, we shouldn't be surprised when God does these things. That he sends us out and he's there with us and he's helping us. And that's what we see Jesus telling the disciples here. God helps us and will always be.
be with us. He always provides. Notice how we see the provision here. It's another marker, a sixth marker, provision. Notice the instructions as they continue uh, in verse 7. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide. For the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. So Jesus desires the disciples to stay in this one house, right? They've got this open door, this person who's, who's opening up the, the, the house, this peace is there. They should stay there and they should have a clear conscience about receiving support, food and lodging from that family, from that house, because the laborer is worthy of his wages. That, that, that phrase is used elsewhere in the New Testament to describe a similar principle involving paying pastors and other workers who are set aside for gospel ministry. The laborer is worthy of his wages, but not more than his wages. Notice, in other words, don't go from house to house and be the town mooch, okay, where everyone in the community knows you're just wanting their food and whatever they can offer you. No, be content with what God provides, even when, when what they offer you to eat. And if you've been overseas, okay, this is where your faith is going to get tested. Whatever they bring, hey, thank, that, thank them and eat it. Because you should bet that whatever it is is more expensive than probably they would have usually, will cost more than they would have usually prepared for themselves and their families, and they're trying to honor you. You can take your stomach medicine later. Some commentaries even argue this is an allusion to even setting aside temporarily food loss on this mission if you find yourself in a Gentile area. And so while the disciples are there, they are to, to minister in Jesus' name, which is essentially a preview of his coming. That's number seven, preview, preview of his coming. The preview of Jesus' ministry is essentially preaching and healing. That's what we've seen him do in Luke's gospel. And then they're, they're, should, they're preparing him. We shouldn't be surprised that they're doing the same thing. Verse nine, heal the sick in it, in the town, and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. These acts of healing have characterized Jesus' ministry. They serve as signs of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. The kingdom is being ushered in as Jesus, the king, comes on the scene. He had authorized the 12 apostles, if you remember, to heal and cast out demons in chapter 9. And here in chapter 10, we see that similar authority extending now beyond the 12 to the 72, this larger group, announcing the arrival of the kingdom, God's rule over God's people in God's place. So their preparatory ministry is, is preparing these people to meet Jesus. And I think that's just a helpful diagnostic for our own lives and ministries. Does, does my life, does my ministry, my impact at work or home or with others prepare others to meet, know, and love, and follow Jesus? That ministry is not always going to be rejoiced in and accepted in, but is that, is that, what, we're, is that what we're aiming for? to help other people know and follow Jesus. It's not accepted um, in all cases. And even here, Jesus prepares them for rejection. He prepares them for rejection and then teaches them how to handle it. How do you handle rejection here for the 72? You do it with public rebuke. That's maybe a stretch for the peas, but that's where we got. Number eight, public rebuke. Look with me at verse 10. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe, off, we wipe away against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. 
So it's in the streets. It's, it's public, okay? Wiping off the dust from their feet is a way of separating themselves from the town completely, kind of comparing it to a Gentile region, saying we want to have nothing to do with that, that unclean region. We separate ourselves from it visibly, publicly. And nevertheless, the kingdom of God has come near. The kingdom of God has come. You see Paul and Barnabas do this uh, a few times in the book of Acts. Acts 13.51 is one place. They shake off the dust from their feet against them and go to Iconium. So the kingdom has come whether you receive it or not. So the success of your gospel ministry isn't dependent on its reception. And you shouldn't change the, the, the message because the reception is good or bad. And if you ultimately reject the kingdom and the messengers of Jesus, it will be worse for you than it was for Sodom. And so I would encourage you to go back this afternoon and look at Genesis 19 and see that account of God destroying a town, a city, with fire who are wicked, who are ungodly. Peter says in 2 Peter 2.6, that is an example, a preview of what will happen on the last day. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. So this rebuke is not, not meant to be cheeky. It's not meant to make much of the person. It's, it's in love. There's still time to repent, but you need to know if you reject this, Sodom is going to be better than what you experience. More bearable. I think that's probably because there's an increased responsibility for those of us who, who know and kind of traffic in these things all the time and yet kind of remain on the periphery. The closer you are to the light and the, the more you reject, the more you're responsible for. So another reason not to just play around in church, and with Jesus, to be on the periphery. That's his point, I think, in these rebukes that follow. Look at verse 13. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? you shall be brought down to Hades. Woe is an expression of deep regret. We don't wish this on people. Jesus' ministry in, in Chorazin is virtually unknown. And there's very little known about his ministry in Bethsaida. So we need to be reminded, there's so much that Jesus did and ministered that we don't know about. But apparently he did some great miracles there and, and the people didn't respond. They were cold to it. And so Jesus says, if the evil cities of Tyre and Sidon had seen what you saw, they would have repented. And even in Jesus' own home base, Capernaum, they're in the same boat. Yeah. Jesus refers to this day of judgment where some will come into everlasting peace and some into everlasting torment. He mentions Hades, which isn't just a, a, 
kind of a waiting place or a place for the dead, but notice it's described in opposition to heaven as a place, I think, of punishment and condemnation, ordained exclusively for the ungodly. On that day, Jesus will actually be the great judge of those that reject him. Listen to what Paul says, and just, just hear this in your own heart as you think about those that, that don't yet know Jesus. Or maybe if you're here this morning and you would say, yeah, I'm, I've been playing games. I've been limping between two opinions. Listen to 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 7. He's talking about granting relief to those who are afflicted and to us. But he, he mentions this. He says, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. So hear the words of the king. Hear the offer of amnesty and pardon. Pay attention. That's the last peg. Nine. Number nine. You made it. Pay attention. Pay attention to the message because actually it comes from Jesus, the king. Verse 16 again. The one who you hear, the one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. So Jesus authorized these messengers to be his ambassadors. And when you reject an ambassador, you reject the one who sent him. So friend, pay attention to what you hear about Jesus, how you take in the good news of Jesus, and and how you think about it, how you respond to it. Whenever the gospel is preached, the kingdom of God, he says, is near. And you may be saying, well, I'm not rejecting the gospel. I'm not, I'm not, you know, standing up and shouting at the preacher and heckling him. I'm not writing ugly things online about Christians. But no, think about it this way. Think about the subtle way Satan would love for you to come to church and hear the gospel, to hear it week in, week out. This announcement of the death and resurrection, offer of peace that comes with it, and you just simply being unmoved doing nothing in response, living a normal, maybe even upstanding life according to the world's standards, that is a rejection of the gospel apart from you trusting in Jesus Christ. Pay attention. Don't reject the message of the gospel. Don't reject Jesus. You reject the message, you reject the one who sent it and the one who sent Jesus. We can't claim ignorance when we stand before him. There will be on that day no excuses. So come to him. Come and receive the peace that Jesus has purchased. Be warned about this eternal peril. And all of those that come, remember, you are part of the harvest. Sometimes in America, we think of ourselves as home base for Jesus. We're not. We're part of the nations. We're part of the harvest. And when we've been, we've been harvested, we're then sent out as workers in the field ourselves. And now we're called to go because the fields are ripe to harvest. And the harvest is plentiful. We're sent by the king as lambs among wolves, but not to fear. For we have a good shepherd who is with us. Listen to J.C. Ryle here as we close. He just reminds us of how these, these things change us, actually the way that we live that our lives would be, he says, characterized by simplicity and unworldliness. 
We must beware thinking too much about our meals and our furniture and our houses, all the many things which concern the life of the body. We must strive to live like men and women whose first thoughts are about the immortal soul. We must endeavor to pass through the world like men who are not yet home and who are not overmuch troubled with the fare they meet on the road and at the inn. Blessed are they who feel like pilgrims and strangers in this life and whose best things are all to come. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we do pray that would characterize us and that your words would so inform us that even today, even now, we would be letting go of things that are much too high in our hearts. And our priorities would be rearranged even now as we think about the realities of the righteous and the wicked, the realities of heaven and hell, the realities of so many people who don't know you. And Lord, thinking about why we're here, why we're gathered together in this congregation to love one another and to share the gospel and to send out others, to support others, maybe even to go ourselves. Lord, would we just pray for a really clear mind right now as we think about these things. And whatever you would lead, wherever you would lead us as we, as we pray and as we think and as we consider and as we apply, we would be ready to respond knowing that you are worth it, that you are the Lord of the harvest. And we can trust you for whatever may come. Lord, make us a church like that, we pray. Make me someone like that. We pray that you would do it for your glory and the power of Christ. We ask it in his name. Amen.